Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we're fortunate to have Tyson Baber join us. Uh, Tyson is a partner with Georgian Partners. They are a growth stage VC fund located in Toronto. You might wonder how in the world did we end up with a growth stage VC fund from Toronto on the Charlotte Angel Connection podcast? It's a great question. Tyson actually went to school at UNC up the road. Um, Early in his career, he worked for IBM in their M&A business development office. In 2004, he, or 2014, he re- relocated to Toronto and became a partner with Georgian Partners. But the reality is my interview several months ago with Derek Wang, the CEO of Stratified, over at the um, public house with Packer Place, Packer Place Public House, um, I found out from Derek in our 30-minute back and forth that Georgian Partners and Tyson were some of the earliest investors in Stratified. Knowing that, I thought it was a great opportunity to get them on the podcast and talk a little bit about how they found Stratified. Um, In the process, I found out that they also invested in another early-stage company here in Charlotte called Precision Lender. So we talk a little bit about that. We talk about the business model of, um, of Georgian Partners. We talk about just some current events, uh, a little bit about GDPR, certainly a little bit about the Uber effect, as it was quite the topic at the point in time of our um, our podcast interview. And then we dig into a lot further about how they um, how they work for companies, um, how they work with companies. Um, and um, kind of nurture them, help them grow, et cetera, et cetera. So really good podcast today with Tyson, really some some nice insight. And I thought it was a fantastic opportunity to talk to an investor in one of Charlotte's really good growth stories right now. So certainly hope you enjoy today's edition of the Charlotte Angel Connection. All right. Sounds good. Well, um, well, welcome to the show, Tyson. I'm excited about our conversation today, and thanks again for carving out some time with me to um, to kind of talk about early stage investments and what you do. My pleasure, William. So, I typically like to get started off with a little bit of a softball question, so we can get the get the conversation rolling along a little bit. Okay. Um, can you give me a little background on Georgian Partners? Um, you know, what types of companies do you invest in? How are you structured? Um, how long has the business been around? And if you're able to, maybe even a few companies you've invested in. Uh, George Jordan Partners is a growth equity investor. We invest in companies, you know, doing kind of six to seven million of ARR all the way up to much larger companies. Our typical first check size would be 20 to 40 million US dollars. And we look to get about 50 million into our companies. Over, over the lifetime of our investment. Uh, we're headquartered in Toronto, and uh, everyone is, is in our firm is here in Toronto. We've been in business for about 10 years. We started uh, 10 years ago with a, an applied analytics thesis. So this is kind of your classic big data thesis about how do you get smarter about leveraging the data exhaust that's coming out of a business process that you have a pretty wide purview over. How do you aggregate and anonymize that data exhaust across customers and then use that to derive unique insights that no single customer of yours would have the amount of data to, to be able to derive on their own and pump those insights back into the business process to enhance customer satisfaction, profitability, whatever the, the business problem is that you're working on. Uh, and, and we start, we saw an opportunity about five years ago to, to branch out from that applied analytics thesis into several discrete areas that to, to further our exploration. So a natural extension of applied analytics was applied AI. So we're looking at all the ways to leverage machine learning and artificial intelligence at speed and scale with uh, l- massive amounts of data that are, that are available today to those type of uh, algorithms. We're also looking at conversational AI. So this is the voice-driven Alexa or Google Google Home or uh, the messaging, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, 
getting into more of the natural language-driven environments where you can remove friction from a, a business process or, or a customer service process. And then the last one that we invest in is broadly what we call trust. It includes notions of privacy by design and security first, what we call security first, uh, around leading with your security story, the enhanced differentiation that you think the security in, in, that your solution could provide to customers over your competitors to win bigger deal sizes faster, particularly in the enterprise space. Uh, but it also incorporates other notions for us around uh, in this world where machine learning algorithms are making decisions that have an impact on customers. How do you explain the decisions that computers are making in terms that people understand? Uh, how, how do you be more transparent about describing the data that was used to make that decision and uh, how do you eliminate sources of bias that are that are in that data or that are that might be in those algorithms um, and broadly how do you how do you build trust with your customers around every aspect of the business but importantly how do you build trust in this world of, of machine learning driven and AI driven uh, automated decision making so that's an area of big focus for us and go ahead. I was going to say, so you just mentioned, um, as you were kind of going through that, and that's a great explanation. You mentioned, um, and I love the term, the um, data exhaust, right? Just all this data that's coming out. You can picture it. Um, and there's so much data that's out there these days. And so you mentioned that as being one segment. And the kind of the newer segment is the trust piece. Um, and a little bit in the U.S. these days, as, as you've likely seen in, in Congress and everything else, data and trust don't necessarily go hand in hand at the present moment, right? Um, so do you see a conflict in those two investment theses or are the data people just strictly moving into a data slash trust world where they're trying to figure out how to build trustworthy um, solutions around data? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. We we see these things going hand in hand, right? You you can't uh, you, you need good data. You need as much data as you can to make the AI perf as performant as it can be. And so, in order to to deliver the value on the AI side of the equation, you need to get trust from your customers to get access to their data uh, to for them to feel comfortable that you're doing the right things to preserve their privacy, their customers' privacy, and, and, and you need that, that flywheel of trust to be able to get access to more data from those customers and then derive more unique insights from that data, uh, leveraging your, your AI and machine learning uh, techniques that you have on the front end. It brings in more data, generates more insights, and you need to constantly be building that trust so that you have more and more access to, to the types of data that you need to continue uh, to continue to deliver more value to your customers, so that's that we we see those things working in a in a virtuous cycle together, where the best companies are that are able to provide the most value to their customers uh, through AI will also be able to generate and and engender more trust with those customers, lead them to provide more data, allows them to provide more value, and that's the the virtuous flywheel that we're trying to create. What's the impact of the European GDPR on this whole thing? Did it accelerate it? Was it already happening? Um, is it hindering it? What's the, um, because they're kind of the, they're on the forefront of it, right? The U.S. is vastly lagging behind on the privacy stuff here. Um, so, but unquestionably, people are looking to the European markets. So how's that impacting privacy, trust, data, et cetera, et cetera, as you see it, surely on the leading edge of, of technology right now. Yeah, GDPR is a is a big topic uh, we've been following for quite some time. You know, still unclear exactly how that's going to be enforced, and uh, so looking for some some you know first proof points around how uh, the EU will will go about enforcing that. California has very similar legislation uh, that, that they're putting in place. So uh, it, it probably won't be long before the U.S. has a, you know, a federal regime that, that uh, provides many of these same protections. So uh, while the European Union and GDPR was one of the earliest places where we started to see some of these, these concerns bubble to the forefront, and we saw companies uh, 
you know, addressing the, uh, the, the regulatory requirements of GDPR first. This is privacy and, and AI have obviously been uh, very closely intertwined for, for quite some time. And, you know, we expect that things like GDPR will, will come into effect uh, all across North America and, and the rest of the world uh, in, in very short order. Um, but there's, there's a difference between, I, I think, the, you know, the, the distinction that we would draw is there's a distinction between doing what you are legally required to do and being you know, regulatorily rec- compliant and building trust with your customers. So er- everything that Facebook showed us last year about how not to build trust with your customers, I mean, they didn't get hacked, right? This wasn't a security breach. This was just a, uh, a, a way that they were allowing their users' data to, to be accessed and by, by a third party that those users were not aware that was happening. So, um, you know, they, they weren't hacked. It wasn't a security issue. It was a trust issue. And so even if you're doing everything that the law says you need to be able, you, you need to do, that's kind of table stakes, right? Building trust requires something more. It requires you to be more proactive and, and always thinking about these notions of fairness, transparency, ethics in, in machine learning. Yeah, so no, it's a phenomenal area of, um, I think of growth over the course of the next, you know, 10 years is just, um, to your point, trust and data, um, because there is so much of it floating out there about us these days. How do we control it as consumers? And, um, it'll be interesting to watch it and you are certainly on the forefront of it. Um, how did you end up with Georgian partners? You're, you know, uh, uh, Carolina undergrad law school MBA. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. Um, I prior to joining Jordan Partners about five years ago, I was leading M and A for one of the divisions of IBM Software Group. Uh, that's where I had the the pleasure to meet some of the folks that I work with today. Uh, when when IBM acquired a company called DWL, headquartered here in Toronto, uh, that's where I met our two of our managing and founding partners, Justin Lafayette and Simon Chong, uh, and stayed very close to that team, worked with them after they came into IBM, worked uh, with them on the acquisitions that became IBM Analytics, uh, some of the larger acquisitions there, Cognos, SPSS, and then also worked on, on Watson, helping stand that up as an organization out of research inside of IBM, helping them make their first investments and, and acquisitions. Um, but I, I stayed close with the, the team that, that uh, we had brought in via the acquisition of DWL and had an opportunity to get back together with the band, as it were, about five years ago, moved up here to, to Toronto, don't have any other connection to, to Canada or Toronto other than uh, the wonderful people here at Georgian Partners that I work with. But uh, that's, how I, that's how I came to be here in Toronto, and it's been great. What's the difference between the corporate M&A role um, in the role in uh, the role that you have now with Georgian Partners, right? What's um, different, same, um, similar? What's um, what's been your transition? Yeah. So it, when when you're looking at companies that are ready to be acquired by the likes of an IBM or an SAP, Oracle, uh, Amazon, there, there's there's a certain uh, a certain look and feel that a company has when they've reached that stage and ready to be acquired. At Georgian Partners, we're investing in companies, you know, around or two before they would reach that point where they they would be ready to be acquired. So, uh, in a lot of ways, I've been able to take what. I learned in, in the world of corporate M&A and, and seeing what companies look like when they get to that point where they're ready to be acquired. And then just looking a little bit further upstream to see, well, what do those companies look like when they're one or two rounds uh, of investment prior to that point? And uh, using using that to be able to, to determine what are the indicators that are, that are going to, to lead a company to down that path uh, that successfully what are the indicators that are going to lead a company successfully down that path to that growth stage, uh, that growth stage eg- exit via acquisition or potentially IPO uh, in some cases? What, what do those companies look like when they're nearing the end of that journey helps me be able to look a little bit further up, up the funnel and see what those companies look like a little bit earlier on in their life cycle. But I would say it's, uh, it's a very, very different 
part of the investment continuum doing doing growth stage investments versus M&A. In M&A, it's the uh, it's sort of the end of one chapter of the company's life, and it's getting ready to start a new chapter, life with the acquirer. Uh, that's, a, that's obviously a very different part of the life cycle than when you're in growth mode and uh, you know a company is, uh, is rapidly experiencing that expansion and, and trying to harden their business processes and mature as an organization and get ready for that eventual exit. Uh, you know, there's a lot, lot happening at this stage of growth investment, very exciting, very dynamic. Um, and so very, very happy to be involved a little bit earlier on in, in some of these exciting companies life cycle. Yeah. So, um, I want to touch base on Watson, but before we do that, um, and ha- what it means in the, um, in the AI space, right? Because it's obviously essentially a, a big AI engine. Um, but before we do that, what kind of describe what your, what your role is at Georgian partners? What do you do? How do you interact with companies from, um, from potentially identifying them all the way through an investment and then all the way through transitioning them to the, either the next investment group um, or to the eventual acquirer. Where do you sit on that continuum? Yeah. So I'm a a partner on our investment team. Uh, It means that I'm leading the evaluation of deals. And when we make investments, I sit on the board typically after that investment. And then it's my job to, uh, to also help bring in our impact team, which is, is part of our model that uh, I might have not mentioned in, in the intro. But our, our impact team is our group of subject matter experts that have PhDs in various backgrounds, applied mathematics, cryptography, computational linguistics, these different horizontal domains that support the thesis areas that I, that I mentioned earlier. And so uh, our, my job as uh, post-investment is to not only you know, be an active and, and helpful board member to the companies, but also to help get our impact team engaged and find the right ways that we can help our companies exploit the advantages that we see in their business models along those different thesis areas that I mentioned. So that's, uh, that's where I get involved. I get involved in the, the early stages of, of evaluating companies coming through our pipeline making the investments, uh, taking those, those investments to our investment committee. And then uh, when we get approval there, then uh, sitting on the boards and bringing our impact team for value add post-investment. That, that would pretty much sum up what I do here. What's your favorite part of the job? Man, Don't worry, uh, it's not recorded. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of fun parts of this job. And I, I do have to say that this is the most fun job I've ever had. Um, there, there, and, there's certainly days where it feels like work, but there's a lot of days where it doesn't. Um, you know, being being able to help companies and being able to take what I've leveraged and being able to leverage what I've learned in my career in enterprise software and and being able to help our growth stage companies navigate some of the twists and turns and and being able to make them more valuable. That's uh, that's the the biggest reward and kick that we get around here. Um, how do um. So, I mean, you mentioned earlier, um, kind of Watson and your role there kind of standing up from the research perspective of everything else. How do companies compete with IBM's? I mean, that's just a big, huge data machine that's just, at least from the outside world, seems to be gobbling up data at a faster pace probably than anybody else can. And if I understand it correctly, machine learning and AI is all about, you know, a data a data grab, right? And more data you have and the human process, the smarter the machine gets and et cetera, et cetera. Am I right on that? Or, um, is it, is the opportunity for other people to step up and, and do really significant things there? Yeah. So there's, there's certainly, um, some advantages that, that a company like IBM has with, with Watson. And there's some other, obviously large players out there that, that have significant AI efforts, Google, uh, Facebook, Amazon. I mean, these groups all have access to massive amounts of data. Um, and gen in general terms, you know, having more data is, is certainly going to be more, you know, advantageous, uh, to, to, the, the group that's trying to develop the most sophisticated solutions. Um, but there's a couple of things that I, I would say are a couple of opportunities to compete with the, with, with the big giants uh, in AI. And, and I, I would uh, characterize it like this. There's, um, there's, there's this notion of going broad versus going deep. 
uh, into, into a specific domain. And so we're big believers that the, the company that can get the deepest uh, wedge of data for the particular use case or set of use cases that they're looking at in any kind of given industry business problem, that that's the company that's going to have the biggest advantage. And so sometimes uh, that doesn't mean uh, trying to wrap your heads or wrap your head around a, a large continuum of data spanning a very large business process. Sometimes that means just focusing on a very, very specific part of a business problem and then going very deep into getting the, you, the, the deepest and, and most amount of data for that particular use case in that particular industry. So I think there, there are opportunities for, for uh, focused startups to really focus in on a, on a very particular industry or, or business problem and then try to establish the greatest set of data and, and, and data moat around that particular use case. I think that, that is one effective way we've seen to compete in, in AI. And then another, uh, another way that startups can compete, and again, it, it kind of follows off this notion of, of picking your focus and being very focused about the business problem that you're trying to solve, is is connecting uh, is bridging this this gap between insight to action. So this is a lot of what we saw in our move from applied analytics into the world of applied AI. One of the the kind of the, the transformative or one of the defining features of that transition in between those two thesis areas for us is that when you get into the world of applied AI, you're doing a lot more automation. You're taking a lot more of the pain away from the user having to figure out, okay, I've got this insight. Now what do I do with it? Applied AI takes that insight and pumps it right into a business process, pumps it right into a recommendation that shows up in front of a user. So now you, you we go from a world world of predicting what we think is going to happen to a world where we can say, now that we think that this is going to happen, this is what we think you should do. Those are prescriptive analytics to a world where we're not telling you what we think you should do anymore. There's a do it button and it's just automatic. It's, it's automatically closing this gap from insight to action. And you know, if the, the, the broader the business problem you're trying to tackle, or if you're trying to you know, solve some, some thorny legacy business problems for some well-established uh, businesses like in banking or insurance, these are the type of areas where it, it becomes a lot more cumbersome to close that insight to action gap. And so startups that are focused on being able to do that, being able to automatically, uh, to, to automatically ingest massive amounts of data, turn that into actions that just automatically get executed without having to, uh, you know, having to take up the, the user's time or, or forcing the user to figure out how they manually close that insight to action gap. I think that's a, a, a big place that startups can compete with some of the, the larger incumbents that are looking at how they can solve some of those broader legacy uh, business problems that, that are a lot harder to, to try and, and close that insight to action gap on. Does, um, it's a really good point. And um, does that, does it go down the road of making every business look the same though, Tyson, or is there enough, is there enough room to maneuver for corporate culture, what you do, how you do it, et cetera, et cetera, that you, um, or some of the problems just so systematic that you actually want to tackle them the same way. Um, and it doesn't matter because you differentiate your business in a different way or, um, or in some other fashion. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I don't want to. Uh, I, I don't want to imply that you know we shouldn't look to solve the hardest problems with AI. I think it yeah. is also true that the harder something is to do, then the more valuable it is once you're able to do it. Right. Yeah. So you know, the there there is a lot of value, and the reason why the the large AI incumbents are focused on some of these thornier business problems because there's a ton of value in being able to solve them. Uh, but I, I would say that if you're if you're a startup and you're looking to get that data flywheel going, you're looking to build that 
that trust flywheel with your customers, it, it's probably a, a good idea to pick off a, a more narrow focused problem and start to build up your critical mass of data assets and workflow solutions that can, can help you really zero in on those, those first use cases where you can rinse and repeat and, and really start to uh, you know, create a lot of value very quickly and get that data and trust flywheel spinning with your customers. I think that's, that's probably the most successful model we've seen for startups trying to compete in the space. Is that stratified then, Tyson? Is that essentially what they've done? Yeah, in a lot of ways, that is that is what Stratified's done. So Stratified has a, a very can we powerful- talk about Strat since they're a portfolio company? Can we talk about them? Sure, sure. Let's talk, let's talk positively, about of course, very positively, very very positively. No, absolutely, and, and you know, excited to talk about Stratified and uh, and and our other investments in uh, in North Carolina. We have a, another company called Precision Lender in North Carolina, yeah. uh, headquartered in Charlotte as well. And so we're, we're, uh, we're starting to see a, a lot more in the Southeast. And so happy to chat about what we're seeing in the, in the region generally. But uh, back to Stratified specifically, Stratified has a very, very powerful solution that's able to ingest all types of unstructured data, map that against structured data. So unstructured would be like text or you know, voice-to-text transcripts of, of call center uh, transcripts, those type of things, uh, reviews that your customer might leave on your website. Structured data is everything that's you know, rows and columns, things that come in databases or in reports. And Stratified has the ability to mesh those two worlds together, unstructured and structured data, to reveal insights that uh, you, you, would, you would otherwise require a human to go through all of that unstructured data, make sense of it, apply manual text classifications to, and it's, it's just a very cumbersome process. They're able to do that all very automatically, combine it with structured data to reveal some very, very unique insights and to do it very quick. One of the, one of the great things about Stratified is their quick time to value. They're able to, to their average uh, time to value it, to complete a POC with a customer is two weeks. So that's, wow. uh, that's really rapid time to value to be able to show a customer insights on their data and your solution. So uh, there's, there's a ton of po- power in this platform. So back to the, the point of, of focus, what is, what is Stratified chose to focus on? So they, there's, there's a lot of use cases. There's a ton of power in this platform, and, and it's really kind of limitless, the things that you could apply it to. But back to this point of getting really good and, and focusing in on a, a particular type of business problem, it, it just so happens, you know, being in Charlotte, uh, surrounded by a lot of, of financial services institutions there, that just happens to be one of the core customer uh, segments for Stratified. They started with a focus around financial services business problems, around customer experience in financial services. And so now they have a, a wealth of models and workflow solutions that can automatically take you from those insights into the action and how you manage that using your CX and product teams. Um, and so that, that's a, a great example of, of a company focusing on specific business problems around financial services, around customer experience, uh, that you, the, the platform is certainly not limited to that. But in order to build up the, the greatest set of data assets, of, of model assets, and of workflow assets for those customer use cases, that's where they've chosen to initially focus. How did you, um, how did you come across Stratify? I mean, you're up in Toronto, but you obviously have a niche in this marketplace, right? Your, your goal is to understand companies like Stratified as they pop up and bubble through the ecosystem. But how do you find companies like that? I mean, it's, it's Charlotte. It's not New York or San Francisco, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, great question. Um, so there's, there's a couple ways, uh, that, that we, we found out about stratified. So, uh, we kind of, uh, we, we triangulated in on them. So one way we, we became aware of the company through, uh, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to, I'm going to take that part off. Cause that's, that's just missed, uh, messier to explain. I'm going to give you the, the, the one simple way, the, the way we, we first uh, came to touch them. So the the way that we became aware of Stratified, uh, so William, I talked to you a little bit about our impact team and the thesis areas that that we invest in. But we also like to eat our own cooking here uh, around 
all things AI and machine learning. And so here at Jordan Partners, we, we don't have a, a large team of folks that are picking up the phone, calling out to every you know, SaaS company across North America. What we do have, though, is we, we have our own AI model that we've trained over the last several years, go through and, and we say, kind of do a swipe left, swipe right. This company is interesting. This company is not. Uh, and, and we do that, you know, many thousands of times over over uh, a year and continually training our model to go through all call it 20,000 SaaS companies in North America and sort the aces to the top of the deck if you will and so uh, that that's not just looking at things like growth rates and and you know financial return metrics it's also importantly looking for as best as we can do uh, the uh, approximating our, our anticipated thesis fit uh, with our, our given thesis area. So, you know, our model, our, what we call this, this uh, model called spring, this, this program generally. And so our spring model, you know, probably wouldn't work for another investment firm because it's keyed in so much to the specific thesis areas and, and the stage where we like to invest, but that's the type of approach we use. And, uh, and Stratified was one of those aces that got sorted to the top of the deck. So uh, we, we saw them there and we are looking for uh, companies broadly, you know, outside of, of some of the, the major tech innovation hubs. Uh, there, there's various reasons for that, but we, we want to make sure that we're seeing the best companies all across North America, wherever they might be. And so uh, when our, when our uh, models suggest that there's something interesting for us to look at in Charlotte, you know, we're, we're definitely going to pick up the phone and, and that's how we found Stratify. They're, they're cheaper here, aren't they Tyson? <laughs> oh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting notion. I, I don't know that, um, you know, if you look at the data, I don't know that it, that it bears out that, uh, that the companies are cheaper in the sense that I think you, you probably still get the same percentage ownership for yeah. for any given check size as you would in some of the other cities but i think the thing that you you, you tend to see uh outside of some of the, the major venture capital hubs uh, investment hubs is uh companies need to be a lot scrappier a lot more bootstrappy if if you come from an environment where it's harder to access capital earlier on in the company's life and you know that has a that has some some significant implications for how the company gets run further on down the line. You know we like to say that if you you start with that type of scrappiness, you're going to bootstrap the company up from cash flows of operations. If you start that way, then you know you're you're probably going to finish that way. Versus if you if you start you know with uh, with access to a lot of capital and you you don't have the need to be as judicious, then uh, you know it, it's harder to build that that into your DNA as you go forward and continue to have access to more and more capital. So it, it is a, a bit of a forcing function on the efficiency of companies in the, in in places like the Southeast U.S. So we do tend to see companies uh, that are. A little bit higher in revenue uh, by by the time they they take on you know their Series A or Series B uh, or Series C investments than maybe some counterparts in the Valley or or New York or Boston, uh, and they, they do tend to be a little bit more capital efficient is what we would see. So you know for investors that are looking for things like predictability and capital efficiency. And growth, like we are, then you know those are those are positive attributes, and so you could say uh, you know you could say that you you get more for your dollar. I don't know if I'd say they're cheaper, but you you get your money's worth. Yeah, your efficiency and whatnot—that's a good trifecta to have, right? Absolutely. Um, so when so your Spring software identifies stratified, what's the first thing do you do? Do you pick up the phone and call Derek, or do you fly down here, or how do you? Um, how do you take it from there? Yeah, yeah, no, we jumped on the phone, uh, had a great conversation, uh, uh, had had Derek and the executive team fly up here to Toronto and see us. Had a, a, a great uh, set of conversations with them. We flew down to North Carolina, down to Charlotte, had some great conversations with them, and uh, you know that's that's how the deal got done. So I did an interview with um, with Derek uh, not too long ago. It's actually how we connected. Y'all retweeted. 
my tweet um, on him or the um, the little series that we did um, at Packer Place here in Charlotte. And I'd never met him before. And almost as soon as I was introduced to him prior to us kind of sitting down in front of the crowd, I was blown away, right? He's got great presence. Um, you can just see his employees and partners and everybody else just running through a brick wall for, um, for him just because he's that type of person. So how soon in the process did you hit the buy button? I mean, were y'all convinced right away or um, with somebody like that that's as dynamic as he is, is it almost a no-brainer and the rest of it you're just going through the motions to make sure you don't hit red flags? Or what's that like when you find somebody like him? Or am I just um, uh, or all founders like that? Yeah, Derek is absolutely a force of nature, and uh, he's a very passionate CEO. And uh, we're, we're you typically don't see that combination uh, of technical acumen. You know, a guy who's a, a PhD, a professor of data science, but that also has that that entrepreneurial skill and that that business operations know how. It's a very very impressive and, and unique combination. And certainly, one of the things that we're looking at. Uh, when we when we first meet a company is is the CEO is the leadership team those are those are of paramount importance to us um, but you know we're uh, we're growth stage investors so you know we we don't uh, we don't hit the buy button as it were until all the diligence is completed and uh, we've 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 completed our whole process so uh, absolutely you know knew we were interested after the first phone call but uh, you know ran ran through the process just like we do on all the companies before. We were ready to to close it up. So, how long does your due diligence process um, take? Is it a is it a three month process, six month? What does it usually take from company to company? Uh, you know, it, it really depends. It's certainly not you know a three months or six month average. Uh, you know, it it, uh, it it's contextual, right? Um, I would say, in in our world, you know, we we definitely understand what entrepreneurs are trying to juggle with. You know, when you say yes to taking a term sheet with one investor, you're saying no to the others who have provided term sheets. And so there's, you know, there's an option cost there. Um, so what we try to do is we, we like to do a lot of pre-term sheet due diligence and, and, and potentially that's, that's uh, heavier uh, lifting than other firms would do pre-term sheet. You know, different firms have different points of view on this and how much work they want to do pre or post-term sheet. We prefer to do the majority of our work pre-term sheet, and then after we uh, issue a term sheet to a company, we you know we've always st- stood behind those. We don't. Uh, we've never had to to walk away from a, a deal that where we put out a term sheet for our own reasons. I'm sure some point uh there'll, there'll be a case where that happens but our our thought is we want you to be able to take a term sheet from georgian partners and take it to your board like you're taking it to the bank and so after we've issued a term sheet we're we're purely into confirmatory diligence and so you know th- this process we we've completed uh you know soup to nuts everything you know we've closed inside of a month before um, oh, wow. and, but you know there's there's other instances where you know the you know it's all it's all contextual to what the company needs to do their process and uh, and you know we're, we're we're able to to fit into those processes always um, so it just depends on on what that looks like for the company on how long it's going to take. Um, growth stage is different than you know first check right to a certain extent, but certainly some companies that y'all invest don't go the way you want them to. What's that like for y'all as a firm when you see? Um, so much potential there, but it just doesn't come to fruition, right? It just kind of falls on its face. As a firm, how do y'all how do y'all work through that? Do y'all do a lot of kind of back end and say what do we missed, or how does that process go for um, you know an established, uh, well um, well versed team like y'all's? Uh, is, so I don't think that you'll talk to any investor who can uh, truthfully tell you that they've never had a miss. Um, you know, the, the this, uh, so this, uh, you know, in, in this business, we're, we're always learning. Uh, every, every deal that we do, we, we, we learn something and we learn uh, a new way to help another company, uh, things that we're looking for in, in companies. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's uh, obviously, 
you know, disappointing whenever an investment doesn't go to uh, the business case the way the way you had anticipated. But you know, in, in our world, in, in the growth equity world, uh, you know, we, we roll up our sleeves and do whatever we can for every company that we have in our portfolio. There's no, uh, you know, in some of the, the venture portfolios, you, you might get this notion of a mortality rate. We don't have a mortality rate. We, we get in and, and help all of our companies. And, you know, there's, uh, so there's, there's, you know, business case aside, there's always the next best thing you can be doing for any company in any point in its life cycle. And so that's what we're always focused on. I got you. Can we talk about Uber? Um, sure. Uh, I'm happy to tell you what, what I, what my thoughts are or what I know about Uber. We're not investors for, for clarification. Yeah, no, that's what I wanted to double check. Um, so Uber, so here it is, it's May 14th, right? Uber just went public a couple of days ago, lost 18% over the first couple of days of trading. And, you know, it's bounced around a little bit today. Um, and there's this whole conversation about, um, private equity, and the Uber effect of going public and everything else. Um, as somebody that's in the, you know, the illiquid early stage investing world, what do you think about the potential Uber effect um, kind of waterfalling down the road? Yeah, well, there's, there's no doubt that, you know, groups like SoftBank and Tiger Global, and these, these groups that are out, you know, writing very large checks uh, earlier and earlier into uh, into companies uh, earlier on in the life cycle that has a knock on effect all the way upstream into into the earliest stages of investment. Um, you've probably seen. I think we've experienced this as well as just round sizes seem to be uh, companies seem to be raising a little bit sooner uh, than, than, you know, the companies seem to be raising in uh, quicker cycles than in the past, slightly quicker. They seem to be raising slightly larger rounds than they may have in the past. You know, a lot of that is also contextual just to the environment that we're in now. And if you have a, you know, a good valuation for your company and an opportunity to de-risk the balance sheet by putting a little more cash on there, you know, firms are, are willing to do that. But there is no doubt that you know, having some of these, uh, these larger players out there uh, willing to write some very, very large checks into companies a little bit earlier on in the life cycle than they would have traditionally, that, that is having an impact all across our industry. Um, before I, um, before I go into kind of next line of thoughts that will kind of continue down the Uber effect, um, circle back around real quick. And I apologize for not asking you kind of as a follow on with the, uh, conversation around stratified, but you mentioned you've taken an investment in another company here in Charlotte called precision lender. Do you mind talking about them for a minute or two as well? Sure. So Precision Lender is a, a really great company. They also have an office in Cary. Where, and so they, uh, the CEO, Carl Radin, and as co-founder, Ken Garcia, um, they, they come out of this world of commercial banking, deep industry experts in this. And so Precision Lender has a, they, they also have a, uh, they're, they're so let me start there. Precision Lender is a, a great example of, of all of our thesis areas, really. But they uh, they have an AI-powered assistant for lenders. It's called Andy. And Andy sits there on the shoulder of the relationship manager, as they're known, and helps them craft the best loan, commercial loan, for their clients that also maximizes return on equity for the bank. So uh, it's a it's a very uh, you know very neat solution that leverages data. We were talking about leveraging data exhaust from across your customers. Uh, Precision Lender is able to do that. They're able to take your what they're they're able to Precision Lender is able to to do that and to take the knowledge of your best relationship manager. They can go and they can see how all of your relationship managers perform. They can see what your best relationship manager is doing and then put the tools from your your best relationship manager's toolkit into the bag of 
all of your relationship managers all across the organization, all across the enterprise. Uh, so that it's it's very powerful technology. Um, it is it, it is occupies a really unique place in the commercial banking tech stack. Uh, yeah. in, in between the CRM and and the the loan underwriting system, so it's uh, it, it is a very uh, very powerful piece of software. But the the power of Andy to to be able to act as a as an intelligent coach across other applications besides just the uh, the, the precision lenders commercial banking application. They also have other workflows that Andy can, can be andified, if you will, and and add this AI assistant on top of that. So a uh, very, very powerful set of technology that they've developed a precision lender and, uh, and, and playing into, again, some of the, those things we talked about, applied AI, conversational AI, you can have a conversation with Andy and uh, they're, they're big, very big on trust. So, uh, you know, great uh, example of all of our thesis areas that work with precision lender. So one of those software solutions, one of those uh, machine learning solutions that is a, um, an enabler or an enhancer for existing workforce rather than an, as a replacement tool um, where you're not replacing people, you're enhancing their skill sets. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're, we're, we're big believers in, the, in this world that, you know, AI isn't going to replace humans, but the humans who use AI will replace the humans who don't. So that's, uh, that, that's, that's how we see that playing out. And that's certainly the, the, the trend that precision lender sees in their world. Okay. Awesome. So, um, are you familiar with, so, um, a great, um, and I don't, I think I know the name persistent precision lender. So I'm going to have to do some additional digging on my, on my end as well and, and get them here on the podcast too. I'm, I'm supposed to do a podcast with Derek and his team over the course of the next couple of months. So, um, We'll, we'll get that team on, on board as well so we can talk a little bit more about their business model. Um, are you familiar with the, the long-term stock exchange, the, um, the entity that just gained regulatory approval out in San Francisco? Um, it is it's backed by a couple of different private equity groups. Um, the concept is essentially um, – private equity is a little bit frustrated as a result of Uber and some of the other recently um, IPO'd companies that innovation isn't being rewarded, so to speak. And so the long-term stock exchange by, by its name in and of itself is trying to create a stock exchange that is more long-term focused rather than quarterly focused. Um, one of the provisions of it is, um, the longer you've been a shareholder in the company, the more voting rights you gain. Um, do you think wall streets with something like that, and it's got some backing from some of the big private equity players in San Francisco, do you think wall Street's undervaluing or underappreciating technology as it rolls through right now? Um, or do you think San Francisco is overvaluing assets as they run through? And maybe it's not San Francisco's entities like SoftBank that you mentioned earlier. Where's the, what's the, what's the log jam right now? Cause they do seem to be butting heads a little bit with Lyft and Uber. I know some other successful IPOs have come out this year, but some of your big ones haven't seemed to have done as well recently. So where's the disconnect? Uh, William, I, I, my, my pun on that question, I, I'm not too familiar with this new long-term stock exchange and, and you might've seen, we just, uh, did an investment in a company called IEX, uh, okay. which, which is, it, it is a stock exchange. Uh, it is all around. If you remember that story that came out, uh, a while ago, it's on 60 minutes. It was all about, uh, Brad Katsuyama. He was the RBC trader up here in, in Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody was front running his trades because they, you know, they had the computers right there on the other side of the, you know, the, the yeah. stock exchange or whatever. So that, that's, that's a company that we've invested in. Um, and so I, I probably, I, I don't want to go too much into the, uh, the stock exchange world, uh, w- without knowing how that might, uh, an answer like that might implicate them or what they're doing. And then on the, uh, the other topic around valuations in the Valley, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't have a real strong perspective around that. I mean, we, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not an anywhere, but the Valley firm. 
Um, you know, it, it, so if we, if we want to talk about that, we could, we could talk a little bit about, you know, kind of, uh, the Valley, New York and Boston versus some of the other areas where we've been investing, you know, Southeast us, Austin has been a, a big uh, city for us. I would probably, you know, give you a similar guidance or comments to the ones I made earlier that in those yeah. markets, we tend to see more capital efficient companies because they haven't had as access to as much private capital as early on in the company's life cycle as companies in San Francisco. Um, so I think that that, that is probably the major effect that, that is driving, you know, uh, valuations and, and from a multiple base perspective, why, why do the multiples look cheaper, uh, in, in areas like the Southeast U S, um, versus the Valley. It, it, you know, it does have a lot to do with, uh, you know, with, with that, that growth and profitability mix and how different investors in different areas, some put more of an emphasis on growth than they do on profitability. Um, so I, I think there's, it's probably a horses for courses discussion there around valuations that you see in different areas. And so we, we like, we, we do have companies in the Valley. So we, we have some exposure to those type of valuations. We also have companies, you know, in the Midwest and Southeast us and, Texas. And so we're, we're, we're kind of spreading and Canada, obviously. So we're, <laughs> we're spreading that, that risk out all across North America. Absolutely. No, I get that. So that makes perfect sense. Um, do you, um, one of the things that we are, are starting to hear more and more about is just crowdfunding and the kind of angel startup space, right? Um, essentially a way to give the retail investor an opportunity to participate in something that's been, I guess, shielded from them in the past. They've, it's been looked at as protecting them so that they didn't lose money because the risk and everything else. Right. How do you view crowdfunded companies versus traditional companies? Is, and is it changing any, or is it, you don't look at them one way or the other, you go through a thesis and as long as spring kind of helps you out, you go through your due diligence from there. Yeah, I, I don't know that we would uh, we would look at a company any differently because their their earliest funding came from friends and family versus you know an angel investor versus uh, you know a, a crowd funded uh, network. You know, I think that uh, all of those any any way that you can get access to the capital that you need at the cost that you want to you know raise it at, I think that makes sense. Um, you know the the. And, and also, even there's the the question of what's the value add that the company's looking to get, right? That's the yep. the big trend that we see in investing today is that you know everybody's got the the same dollars. So what else do you get besides the dollars? Um, so I, you know, if uh, if those those uh, crowd funded networks, if they're able to get value from those investors at that stage in that way, then you know I think that's a that's a perfectly viable way to raise those funds. Yeah, now I think with more people having ideas, having a a mechanism for folks that maybe don't have the connections or something else to kind of get a a platform validated or a product validated before they go to the next round is a helpful thing. Absolutely. Um, um, what do you read on a daily basis? Um, right. Yeah. So uh, you know, great question. Um, you know, reading. Uh, you know, we get we get all the standard industry uh publications so you know going through the the cb insights i think they've got some you know interesting reports the uh you know the pitch books and the crunch bases of the world uh we, you know we 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 consume all of that um you know tech crunch and and all the the regular publications i think you know um Aside from you know the, the kind of the general industry stuff, there's there's always uh, a new area that we're looking at, new area we're exploring. Uh, so you know, uh, recently I, I've been getting very deep into the world of insurance, and so you know a lot of uh, a lot of non traditional publications that I've been reading in that area. So um, you know, it re really depends on on what we're what we're focused on at any given time, and then of course we're we're always uh, consuming things around our thesis areas around the latest and greatest in, in artificial intelligence and conversational uh, AI and in trust. And then, you know, new future thesis areas that we might want to explore. We're, uh, we're looking at quantum 
as a as an area where you know might might be a, a future thesis area that we want to explore. A lot of potential uh, could be game changing for every software company in every industry, every horizontal. So you know we're always trying to see what's coming down down the corner around the bend and the the types of thesis areas and trends that are going to affect our companies five years from now. So uh, you know a good good bit of focused on today, a good bit of focused on the future and uh, everything in between. Yeah. So um, in your world, if I understand it correctly, kind of growth equity, private equity, I'll lump them together for a second. So I apologize. Um, the, the traditional sense has been, it's a 10 year kind of commitment, right? Um, fund opens up, it's 10 years. It might run longer. Um, it gets, um, it gets really upped on an annualized basis. I think and traditionally they can go to 15 years or maybe longer. Um, do you see that staying put for the next um, I don't know, for the next 10 years, the, the fund that raises today, do you still see them as being 10-year funds or do you see the cycle um, slowing or speeding up or uh, is the 10-year kind of fund life cycle, is it just kind of right for the industry? Yeah, you know, I think... Um you know the 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 ten year model. I think you know you you if you look back over time, you would see uh, you would see some funds that were much shorter than that. Some that you know uh, get towards the ten year mark. So you know I, I think ten ten years has probably always been a little bit of a you know a high water mark, if you will. Um, certainly, the trend would be for for funds to be going longer and longer towards you know towards the the edge of that that ten year period. Um, I don't know if there's, you know, if there'll there'll be any kind of long lasting structural changes to that. I think you know ten year for for growth equity, anyways. I think yeah. you know ten years probably still works there. Potentially, you would you would start to see some of the earlier seed and A funds that they might be, um, you know, approaching approaching their next funds with a little bit longer capital deployment window. I think uh, a couple of firms have, have raised recently indicating that. So, you know, that's, uh, that's probably the, the trend is to go longer, but I, I don't, I don't know that, uh, you know, the, the 10 year window w- would need to be extended to any material extent on a, you know, on a go forward basis. So, um, Private equity, growth equity, the whole early stage investment world, um, it's soaked up more and more capital recently, right? Um, I think more people, obviously, there are fewer publicly listed companies today than there were 10 or 20 years ago. There's been a lot written about that. Um, a lot more staying public or private longer before they go public, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so more people are exploring this private equity, growth equity, kind of illiquid asset space. Um, and the fear of what does the world look like in 10 years is always something that probably checks people up. How do you take a 10, call it a seven to 10 year approach um, and feel comfortable with it? You personally, right? Not talking to anybody else, but um, make a commitment to a company for seven to 10 years. Um, Is it just something that you've gotten over slowly because you've seen the world work and operate for so long? Um, you know, it certainly is a, a long commitment, and uh, you know, we we uh, we we definitely take that uh, commitment very seriously and and understand the the length of it. I, I'd say that you know the way that we we at Georgian Partners get comfortable with it, uh, everybody here is it all comes back to our thesis areas, right? We we absolutely believe that those thesis areas that we're investing in are the areas where the winners from every software category, every horizontal, every vertical are going to come from. They won't all do all of those things, you know, applied AI and conversational AI and trust. They won't do all three of those things uh, at the same rate and pace across all industries. It it depends on, you know, what the the particular needs are of that industry and the the most pressing business problems are. Um, But we have a very strong belief that, as long as we're investing in companies that do take advantage of those thesis areas that are the leaders in their areas, in their industries or, or market segments, because of how they take advantage of our thesis areas, that those will be 
the winners long term. And uh, and so yeah, in order to do that, in order to keep doing that fun after fun, you know, we we've been uh, you know, we've been right four times with our existing four thesis areas. We got to yeah. continue to be right. And so that's uh, you know going back to what kind of things am I reading? You know, we're not a uh, you know we're we're not putting hundreds of millions of dollars to work in quantum today, but maybe in the future, right? So how do we de-risk that and, and make sure that we're right about that, those next set of thesis areas? That's, that's really where we spend a lot of time and focus to give us the confidence that you know, we're going to be able to support a company over that you know, 10, 15-year horizon, whatever it is, along those thesis areas. So great point. So I mean, essentially, is there safety or um, probably perceived safety in the thesis of what you're investing in because you're investing in things that companies are already starting to migrate towards, which means it's a five to 10 year life cycle at bare minimum of things they're going to be investing in to continue to enhance and improve business models. Yeah, uh, we're we're seeing a ton of, of applied AI deals today, but I think we're still in the um, you know the early innings. There's there's going to be applied AI companies to invest in for another 15, 20 years. Yeah, did you see your? Um, so we're kind of wrapping up on our time here, and um, it's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Um, did you see yourself doing this back at Carolina? What did you want to do? Uh, you know, great question. Um, I, I can't claim to be someone who, you know, charted a, a course for venture capital, private equity. Um, you know, I, I, I uh, th- those opportunities were there at, at my business school and I kind of regret now not, not, uh, doing more of that. But, um, you know, I, uh, as you mentioned, I, as a JD MBA, um, my, my first job was as, as corporate counsel, um, so kind of went a, a different route before I ended up going more of the, uh, the business school and, and M and a, uh, route. And so it was, uh, you know, I think it's a pretty natural place to end up given what I did before Jordan partners with the, the M and a at IBM, but, uh, you know, feel very, very fortunate to be involved in this industry. Um, you know, there's, there's not a, a lot of folks that get to do this for a living and, and back to the, to the point of, you know, having a lot of fun. This is the most fun I've ever had. And so, uh, might not have seen myself doing this, but I, I sure am glad that I'm doing it now. I hear you. Well, um, from the sounds of you finding stratified and, and making the investment and continuing to help them along, sounds like Charlotte's pretty, um, pretty glad that you made the decision as well. So, um, as I said earlier, um, Tyson, thanks so much for carving out some time with me. It's, it's been a, a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, William. My pleasure. So uh, next time you're in Charlotte visiting with Stratified or Precision, um, be sure to stop into the to the entrepreneurship startup community. We'd love to treat you to a beer or beverage of your choice. Sounds great. I look forward to it. So thanks a lot. Have a good rest of your day. Okay. Thanks, William. William Bissett is an investment advisor representative with Seacrest Blakey & Associates, a registered investment advisor. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Seacrest Blakey & Associates. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Seacrest Blakey & Associates does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under the Securities Act and a qualified purchaser as defined in Section 2A, Paragraph 51, Line A, under the Company Act or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.